Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Alicia Troutwine. She's a founder of The Mom Kind. She's an autism advocate, a writer, and a motivational speaker. She's also a dedicated mom of four. And we're going to talk about her own autism diagnosis and that of her three children, niece and brother, and her life's mission and all that good stuff. So, Alicia, thanks so much for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, tell me about your journey and a bit about your history, and then you know we'll, we'll come to present day when you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. So our story kind of is one of those complicated backwards story. You think me being the oldest child, I would have gotten my diagnosis first, and that's definitely not the case. And so my brother was diagnosed about 10, he was about 10 years old and he was diagnosed with autism. We knew something was going on, but we didn't have an answer for what. And that was 15 years ago. And so I had always, you know, dealt with helping him, trying to figure out how to help him through different things. And when it came to my own children, I did see a lot of similarities, but I didn't have an answer for my children until my son was born And I noticed that he behaved exactly like my little brother. Um, Having a large age gap between my brother and I, I was able to, you know, interact with him as an infant growing up, seeing, you know, how his behaviors and mannerisms were. And I noticed that my son was the same way. I noticed that, you know, even when he was a breastfeeding child, he would not make eye contact. He would not look up, which is a normal thing that happens in those moments. And so we had a lot, yeah, we had a few red flags that kind of triggered here and there. And it was really from day one where I was thinking, you know, my son's autistic and it's, you know, not common, obviously for, you know, especially for the first child being diagnosed in a household for a parent to know so early on, but we had, you know, like I said, we'd seen through my brother, him growing up, obviously there were similarities with him and my daughters, but 
you know, see it, you know, just almost play out, you know, the same exact way. And so we always kept an eye. And at an 18 month appointment, he had, we did the evaluation and he had three or four red flags at the time. So he was at that stage of, well, let's wait and see what happens. And by 19 months, so you're a month later, he had lost all words that he knew. He had, there was probably well over 30 words, including mom and dad. And he lost them all at 19 months. Oh man, and that's so, terrible. Yeah, it was a lot. And was, was there anything that happened that credit, you know, like caused that you believe or no, it just happened out of nowhere? It just kind of one of those happened out of nowhere. So we noticed that, you know, he had stopped really, you know, being able to verbalize anything. Um, he was, we were able to get him to learn new words, but it was definitely not the same pace that he was originally at. And so it took uh, quite some time to relearn a lot of those words through speech therapy. But we know, you know, obviously that's a big red flag when you have a regression like that. And it was out of nowhere. It was just woke up one day and noticed he wasn't saying the same things he had been saying. You know, he had already been starting to communicate by dragging me places as opposed to pointing or asking for a specific food or something like that you know he would just drive me to a location and I would have to sit there and try to figure out what he was trying to communicate you know what what food did he want what toy did he want things like that and so we all you know on the diagnose on the list to be diagnosed so about three month wait list of time and at the exact same time I was kind of really reconsidering my children my daughter's diagnosis they had been seeing doctors as well since they were two and they never got a solid diagnosis. We had had ADHD for one of them, but outside of that, it was general mood disorder was the main diagnosis that they received just to have a diagnosis on file to get the medication that seemed to help them best. And we, I was like, well, let's go ahead and look at a different doctor, at least for one of them, because the girls were together being 16 months apart. I felt like, well, maybe they're being, their symptoms are almost combined to the point that, you know, doctors aren't noticing them as individuals anymore. Did you have an autism diagnosis yourself? Is yes, that what you said I, at the beginning? Yeah, I do, but I didn't have mine yet. What I want to know is I haven't really heard many people talk about what it is like to be someone that has autism. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what, what was going on with you specifically that told you that you had an issue and what, it is, what does it feel like? And as you remember back to your childhood, were you affected back then, do you believe, or it was only recently? Oh, yeah. No, I was absolutely affected back then. And what really triggered me to really consider it was after, so my son wanted to get diagnosed, my daughter, you know, the, boy, the daughter that I separated to a different doctor got diagnosed six weeks later than my son. So we had, you know, two autism diagnoses in our house within a matter of six weeks. And then my older daughter wound up a year later. And in that process of getting the last one diagnosed, we were really evaluating my childhood. And how, what similarities and their doctor and I spoke several times about things that, you know, she noticed with my, with, with, you know, my mannerisms, the things I also said that I did as well as a child. So my types of interactions with adults, I noticed that, you know, looking back, you know, it wasn't something common to do, but it wasn't anything different, uncommon to me was I sat there and read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica and went through from A to Z you know, reading through that. And I read through it several times as a child. And that was just something that was interesting to me and I enjoyed doing. And I noticed that, you know, my play really, if I look back on it, I never really had an imagination when it came to playing with toys. It was more reenactments of what I'd seen other people doing. 
or reenact okay. like a show I saw. Like, so it'd be, you know, I watched a TV show, a cartoon, and then the toys, I would then reenact the exact same thing. So it was, it was more of a repetition than it was individual imagination. And the other big thing okay. that I noticed that I was always, you know, considered an old soul is what I was always told. That was old soul that I, I preferred to speak to adult. My conversations were more at an adult level than they should have been for the age I was at when I had, you know, throughout my childhood. And so there were a lot of things that if I were born, you know, three decades later, I probably would have got a diagnosis pretty quickly. And, but this time period difference, you know, I didn't have a name. I knew I was different. I knew that I struggled to make friends. I couldn't understand how to make friends. And if I got them, I didn't understand how to maintain those friendships. And there was a lot of anxiety and bullying, things that I went through as a child that were more extreme than what a typical child would go through, simply because I didn't have an answer for what it was that made me different. All I knew was I was different, almost, you know, kind of that feeling of like, oh, I'm weird. There's something wrong with me, but not having an answer to what it was. And it wasn't until after my kids were diagnosed and I, you know, went through the diagnosis process as an adult. And kind of reevaluating all those childhood experiences that I realized, I'm like, oh, well, this makes sense. There wasn't anything necessarily wrong with me. It's just, I was autistic. I didn't have the support I needed. And, you know, that's, it, it, it sucks that that wasn't pinpointed as a child, but at least now I can look back and see it from a different perspective. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. But what is it like to be autistic? It sounds like, you know, you're extremely high-functioning. I guess, I hope that's the right words for it, but I know there's a spectrum of ability or disability, but, like, what insights can you give having or being someone that's affected by this yourself? Like, what does someone that's not autistic not know about what's going on in your head or how you think? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to, and I appreciate that you, you know, right away, you know, you're hoping that that's the right language. Um, and when it comes to functioning labels, it's very hard in the autistic community to pinpoint the best way to phrase things. The main thing we try to say is support needs. So when it comes to being within my own home, uh, my support needs are kind of lower. They're, you know, I don't need as much support because my routine is in place. I have things that I need, but when I'm out and about in public, you know, my anxiety increases. There are, you know, the way that I communicate, I I am very black and white on how I elaborate things a lot of times. And I've had to learn to change that a little bit to try to like give more context because I will say, I will look at something so simply, like I just get to the core of something. Okay, here's the situation, that's it. And I don't take in, always take into consideration the emotions from the other people involved. And that causes, you know, this disconnect between communication. So, you know, where I'm feeling like, oh, I'm having a great conversation, the other person might not. 
they might think that I'm angry when I'm happy. Um, I've had that happen. Even my own husband, we've had times where he's completely misconstrued um, how I was feeling because he was looking for those, you know, the facial clues of, you know, what somebody looks like when they're happy or they're angry and the emotional, you know, the tone of your voice and things like that. I wasn't angry at all, but he, based off my, you know, facial expressions and my tone of voice, he was picking up, oh, she's angry about something. When the reality was, I was just trying to pinpoint, you know, at the time, I think we were at the part, we were looking for the pharmacy hours. And it was, I was just looking at something like I just had a very blank emotion where I wasn't, you know, emphasizing what I might feel on the inside. And so it was completely misconstrued. And that happens often in conversation that it's kind of an interesting concept that, you know, a lot of times you have two neurodiverse individuals, whether they're both autistic, autistic and ADHD, different neurodiversities, a lot of times they can understand the communication between each other just as easily as two neurotypical individuals, meaning people that do not have a diagnosis of any sort. Um, So how you might communicate with somebody, that easy conversation, whereas with me, it's hard. Well, two neurodiverse people together often can understand each other better. And it's just because we're looking for different clues things that we've learned to adjust in, you know, like my husband did, he was looking for those clues in their faces. So that's something even before realizing I had an autism diagnosis or having, you know, seeing books and things like that, I would look at things and say, okay, she says she's happy. This is what her face looks like when she's happy. So then that's a clue I'm looking for because I can't always pinpoint somebody's emotions. So I'm always looking for those extra clues with their body language, with other things to try to pick up on what they are meeting. So do you have, so you have trouble discerning other people's emotions? Like, I guess the, um, the opposite of this is people that think they can read other people's minds when they can't, which I know is like a cognitive distortion, but do you feel like people are a, um, a wall to you? Like you, you can't picture what they're feeling. Like you, you need extra clues that maybe other people wouldn't need. Yeah, absolutely. And it varies, you know, and one of the biggest things is the relationship to the person. So, you know, when I know somebody, I, you know, my children, my husband, you know, friends that I have, people like maybe within our community, our church, things like that, according to the level of the relationship is how much I can really discern the context behind what they are saying or the emotion behind it. So, you know, with people that are, I'm very close with, I can pick up on a lot of their emotions very easily and see, okay, they're, they're unhappy. They're not, you know, I may not get it hundred percent right, but I can pinpoint a lot more because I learned them as an individual. But if I were to meet someone in public and try, and I'm trying to say, make a new friendship, for example, and I'm trying to determine, are, do they like me? Are they someone who is interested in this conversation? I don't just instantly pick up on that because there are, certain clues within conversations that I have to look for. So, you know, are they, you know, nodding their head along? Are they doing the things that, you know, that positive communication, you know, looking for ways to see if they are actively engaged in the conversation. Another thing that, you know, is really that I've noticed now looking back on things, something I've always done, but I have always, when it came to empathy, I am very empathetic. However, how I relay that to others can sometimes come across as I'm trying to one up your situation. So if you tell me you're sad because, you know, your dog passed away, 
you know, my instant thought process is, oh, I had a similar experience with, you know, this animal and having that, whereas me that's sharing my emotion that I can relate or I can empathize with you. Some people see that as a one-up situation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. With your kids having, I guess, similar issues, what kind of insights do you have that other moms and dads wouldn't have that are, you know, that don't have autism? Like, do you think this helps you or does it make it harder for you to work with your kids? For me, it makes it a lot easier. We have, you know, within our home, we have four autism diagnosis and two, and then, you know, my husband and my eldest, my eldest has moved out since then because she's 19, but you know, they both have ADHD diagnosis. So Within our home, we have people, even though we all share, you know, either the same diagnosis or similar diagnoses, we're all individually different on how we react to things. And so I have learned to appreciate that what they are relaying, what I am interpreting from them may not be accurate. So it's more looking at the full picture and taking those step backs that a lot of times parents don't see. They see their kids fighting about something and the kid's angry and breaking something their instinct is just, oh, that kid's in trouble because he's, you know, breaking this. Whereas I look at it more of, okay, well, what got us here? Why, why is he reacting that way? What led us to this? And then taking those step backs to find, you know, it might be that there's a miscommunication between the two of them. It could be that, you know, somebody's hungry and they start talking to somebody at the wrong time and they just, you know, just the wrong emotions at the wrong times. And so for me, it's, it's been very helpful being able to really understand my own diagnosis and where I've missed those, you know, clues and what people are looking for. I'm able to kind of take that step back and see it from both perspectives now. What kind of work are you doing with other families that are dealing with autism? You know, what kind of resources have you created for them and what kind of insights do you give? Yeah. So currently right now I have, I've done a lot um, when it comes to putting stuff out, you know, online, giving quick resources for parents, Right now, I'm actually working within the local community, helping parents come, you know, find the right resources for their kids within the school district and getting, you know, IEPs in place, getting the help where they're not receiving it. Because a lot of times, you know, when it comes to being a parent of an autistic child, you, as with any child, you're leaning on your educators to help find the right resources because you don't know what you're looking for. You don't know how to help your child. So you're relying on doctors and teachers and administrations at schools to really help you navigate those waters. Well, the problem is they get kind of lacking in those areas. So a lot of parents don't even know how to ask for an IEP, little on, you know, what they need to ask for on that, you know, evaluation for their child, what resources are going to help them. And so I've been doing a lot of work on helping parents, you know, kind of connect within their communities, figure out how, what, you know, their child individually needs, because even though we all share a diagnosis, we're all individuals. So something that might help me might not help the next person. And so it's looking at a situation from, okay, let's take a step back. Let's, you know, put yourself in the child's situation. What are they able to communicate? Okay. Do they have a communication style that, you know, you see that seems to work? Because a lot of times parents instinctively help their children in ways that, you know, the school would definitely be willing to do, but they don't know how to, you know, the parents don't know how to transfer that information to the school a lot of times. 
um, you know, to say, oh, this is what they mean when they act like this. Or if you see them, you know, yelling, typically it's because they're sad about something. And finding those ways to help parents connect with their schools and help their help their children get those right resources. Um, there's a big need out there right now for that. And so that's what I've kind of started within our own community doing as well. Well, what, what do you see that, uh, what do parents need? Do they, are their children alien to them and they don't know how to relate to them? Or like, where do they need the most help you've seen? So typically when it comes to resources, it's not with other children that are the problem. As kids get older, when you have bullying situations and things like that, that those are significant issues. But the younger years, a lot of times it's not the child, the, what the child needs. It's more about getting the school to do what they're legally required to do. And what do you mean? What, what do schools need to do that they're not doing? Well, a lot of times, I mean, just advocate, just the simple things of, find, you know, there are laws in place on how, you know, IEPs are individual education plans. And there are laws in place on things that, you know, have to be done to provide accommodation for any child with a disability, whether that be a physical, emotional, it, you know, learning disability, anything like that, that those accommodations need to be made to give them an equal playing field and being able to learn the information and be in the environment with their peers. And a lot of times if a child's needs aren't seen as, you know, disruptive to the school, a lot of times they pass under the, you know, kind of like under the radar to where they don't get the supports they need. And then they get to seventh, eighth, ninth grade even. And now they're struggling greatly. They're, you know, they don't have, you know, they may have a very minimal group of friends. Their grades are significantly behind because they didn't receive the supports they needed. Things that could be as simple as, you know, reading a test out loud to them, as opposed to expecting them to read it on, on their own or providing, you know, one-on-one attention for, you know, social skills. There are classes within most school districts on helping kids learn those communication skills and how to interact with their peers. And that's something that's a resource that's there, but often parents have no clue that those resources are there. What would these resources look like? You know, like what's an example or two of a resource that parents are not even aware of that a school could provide? Yeah, I mean, like just for, you know, our school district, for example, you know, they have connections within the community to provide, you know, counseling from a mental health professional uh, to come into the school during the school day to provide counseling. They can have, you know, speech pathologists, uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, all that can be provided within the school day. There are extra supports such as, you know, especially as kids get older and the work, you know, you notice like kids will always have all this homework they try to catch up on, right? And all this information. Well, one resource that can be provided is a 50% workload where a child has that really struggles with getting that written stuff in and falling behind and getting overwhelmed constantly to where the teacher, the same exact assignment can be handed out to everyone, but a child with an IEP that struggles with that amount of work may only be required to do 50% of the work so that they can focus on the 50% that they are doing to, you know, learn the skills actively the same way somebody else doing 100% of it would. And, you know, little resources like that can make a huge difference for a child. Well, what are some of the, I don't know, where is extra help needed? What does extra help look like for autistic kids in the school system? Like, what do they have trouble with and what do they need help with? Um, yeah, so it obviously varies child to child, but I mean, a lot of things are, you know, the social, emotional communication, you know, learning how to interact with peers, 
to make those friendships and communicate with their peers and build those relationships. You have academics, whereas, you know, some people are visual learners. Some of them, you know, do better by auditory, by hearing stuff. And there's different learning styles that, you know, if those accommodations are provided, the child can learn at the exact same pace as, an, as you know, the neurotypical peers. I've seen, you know, issues as simple as, oh, they just need, you know, an extra 15 minutes to do tests to things as severe as the school district not providing any type of education whatsoever to the child. And the case okay. very significantly um, supports, but there are so many things that can be just brought into the classroom. There can be, you know, for a child that struggles with, you know, maybe sitting still, having the ability to, you know, have a space in the room that they can get up and walk around for a couple minutes to self-regulate to then sit back down and do the work or having a special type of chair to sit on to give them that sensory input they need to be able to focus during the day. Well, depending on, you know, how, I don't know how to put this again, but where, where a child is on the spectrum, yeah. what are some things needed for people that have light autism, I'll call it, versus like really heavy, significant disability due to autism? Like what's different about those two kinds of kids and what do they need individually? Yeah, so... You know, autism right now with the DSM-5 and how, you know, autism and other mental health disorders are diagnosed, um, they break it down into levels with level one being their support needs are needed, but they're, you know, at the starting level. And you have kids that are down at level three that, you know, they need constant 24-7 care. And, you know, for a child who is completely nonverbal, so they are not able to communicate with words or the words that they have are very limited echolalia repetition type words, they might need something like, you know, an iPad provided that gives them an app that provides them speech. So they can push a button for the object to say the chair, to go outside, different things that they can communicate through alternate technology. And that same child may do great at, you know, all the academics, they need that way to communicate. Whereas, you have a child who can be is completely verbal, but they don't know how to communicate with their adult with the adults in their life. So their teachers, they don't know how to ask for help or they're struggling with sensory overload and they don't understand themselves how the environment's affecting them. So it could be that the room is too noisy where they're getting to a point where they're having a meltdown, they're crying, they're screaming, or they're going very inward and they're just not moving. They can't function. And it can be something like, you know, the noise, the lights, there's different things sensory input wise that can cause, you know, a meltdown to happen that really impacts their learning. Because if you're constantly struggling, say, with noise, because the hallways are noisy, and you're constantly impacted by the noise, well, you can't focus on your schoolwork. And so their needs in that moment, while someone looking from the outside, not understanding might say, well, noise versus being able to communicate, well, that's the noise is the lesser need. But in the moment, you know, a child that's able to communicate through a device, but not verbally, may be completely supported. Whereas a child who is struggling because there's so much noise and bright lights around them, their learning environment's completely just out of, you know, chaotic, and they're not able to learn and focus on their schoolwork. So when it comes to needs, even though, like you said, it's a spectrum, the needs are so great in different areas. So, and they're also very fluid that, you know, there are times where 
just like any other child, as you grow certain things, you learn certain skills. So you might not need help in certain areas as much as you did, say, when you were five. But you might have increased needs because now you're getting ready to go into the workforce and learning, you know, the routines and the, you know, how to interact with customers, things like that. And so those things kind of change throughout life. But yes, there are those who are impacted severely in the way that they cannot communicate, they cannot live on their own. And in a sense, it's almost unfair to both sides of that, that the autism spectrum, that people see, you know, they think of it as one individual line. And it's not, it's a constantly moving thing where the person who is nonverbal, who cannot communicate their needs, cannot ever take care of themselves alone. They have individual needs that may not relate at all to someone who can verbalize what's going on, you know, in their life. And so you see a really big gap between supports that people need on both sides. And it's, I I see that the kids that kind of almost fall in the middle of that are the ones that get left out even the worst because they kind of like pass through the radar. They're like, well, our needs aren't as bad as these. So we're going to focus on a child who has the worst needs. And then, you know, later on, the child who didn't have the worst needs, well, now they're in high school and their needs are so great that they are struggling to even stay in, enrolled in school. What about um, boys versus girls? How does autism manifest differently in them? Yeah, so it's kind of funny. It's one of those things where it was looked at, autism for the longest time was looked at, you know, realistically as primarily boy, you know, white boy disorder. It was looked at from the interest of little boys. It was never looked at from what are little girls interested in. And so, Whereas, you know, giving the example that most people think of, they think of trains and wheels, things like that for little boys when that, you know, comes to special interests as a young child. Whereas a girl, her special interest may be, you know, Barbie dolls or stuffed animals. I mean, as a child, I had well over 300 stuffed animals. That was my special interest. That was the thing I collected without having a name for it. But because I was a girl, it was looked at as like, oh, that's just normal. She's just being a girl. Whereas if a boy has three under cranes and that's all he has, oh, well, that's all he's interested in. Let's look at office. And so how it presents, one of those things where it's completely the same and completely different all at the same time. You know, it's one of those things where it's, if you look at it from a more general aspect, okay, they have a special, they have special interests, their communication styles are different. You know, there's the vast things and the social interactions, you know, girls are typically taught to be certain ways in our, you know, in our cultures, really, that we are taught, you know, to, you know, how we interact with adults, we're taught how to sit, how to, what toys we're supposed to play with. And so we interact in a way that a lot of times passes in society as being normal or typical. When looking at it from a greater picture, you see the lack of, you know, ability to communicate without, you know, having a script, you know, it's like you when you go say hi to somebody, it's always, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Even though maybe they're not great, that's the instant thing you're supposed to say. I'm great. What's commonly noticed between boys and girls when non-autistic people interact with autistic, you know, boys and girls? Like, what's different about them? You know, I, I'd say that a big thing is the communication styles would be the biggest thing. That that's why a lot of times people do not realize that a girl might be autistic because they see them as someone, well, they're talking they're communicating with me. They appear to be having eye contact, which, you know, is one of those things that 
a lot of us will learn tricks like looking maybe at the forehead or the nose. It's not necessarily the eyes, but we're looking in the direction, right? But we'll have, you know, different, you know, boys, you know, like I said, it's trains, it's, you know, routines, you see stacking of things, whereas girls, it might be collecting things in nature. A lot of times you'll see things such as how girls and boys empathize with each other. So, you know, girls' emotions, whenever a girl reacts, you know, strongly to something, most of the time in society, it's looked as they're being overdramatic. They're being, you know, they're spoiled. And where if a boy were to have the same reaction, it's looked at as, oh, there's something wrong. And so you had that, but then you had at the same time, you know, like with my daughters, anxiety and sleep issues were huge with them. And it's a common, co- you know, concurrent you know diagnosis to have anxiety and depression with autism but girls a lot of times there's a lot more anxiety because there's so much more social pressure so a lot of times you know you'll see you'll see little girls you know like as opposed to maybe being someone who watches fans turning around or wheels they might be individually themselves spinning around and twirling around and so you know a lot of times that like like, uh do girls will girls still have like ritualistic behaviors like yeah absolutely are are they rocking or like Again, running in circles endlessly or things like that? Yeah, so they'll be, and a lot of times it's, it's individual, but yes, they'll have those same type of interactions. But, you know, it might be something instead of, you know, rocking, it might be that they're tapping their knee, you know, foot where their knee's bouncing, right? You'll see when people are anxious a lot of times, they bounce their knees. That might be their ritualistic motion or certain twirling their hair. You know, girls typically have longer hair as children. That's, you know, just something we do as a society. You know, we cut little boys' hair, little girls' hair grows. So they'll sit there and twirl their hair because it's something to fiddle with all the time, right? And whereas, or, you know, my daughters were really big on chewing on their hair or chewing on their, you know, the colors of their shirt. One thing that I would say that I see more in girls, just from experience from the girls that I've interacted with, they're autistic. Obviously, this is individual to each child but I've seen that the best kind of a best friend issue whereas they focus on one friendship and when that other friend has more than one you know more friends they don't under always understand it they can only focus on that one friendship and so having you know they it's kind of like it seems like they're being very needy but the reality is they focus their time on that one building that one friendship and they don't understand having relationships with multiple friends at the same time a lot of times I've seen that happen often you do, know do boys do that too or do boys not really form relationships at all when they're autistic you know I mean they everyone forms relationships it's but it's displayed differently a lot of times boys it's more there's such common things for boys to be interested in no matter what you know whether they have a diagnosis or not so Everybody buys their little boys Thomas the train engine when they're two and, you know, or they get them, you know, into cars when they're three, four and, you know, oh, they, everybody likes Pokemon. And so there's something that they can talk about and they're, they have those relationships, but it's just, there's a best friend issue I've seen that's a little bit stronger with girls. But once again, it varies, you know, child to child. And that's the thing about that makes autism hard for most people to understand is that it is a spectrum. It's not a set this is exactly what they're going to do it's you know you have you know genetic disorders like you know down syndrome where there are physical features that are pretty much common in every person right that you can commonly diagnose you know you can look as an outsider looking in you can look at somebody and say yeah they probably have down syndrome or something similar whereas with autism 
there's no clear look to autism. There's no set, you know, there is an overview set of symptoms, but there's no set. This is exactly what you're going to do. I mean, the real, the overview of it is simple, you know, there's difficulties with communication, difficulties with relationships, and that, you know, lack of flexibility in their behavior. So they're very routine, ritualistic, you know, things, you know, having toys in a set spot or, you know, not being able to communicate in a way that gets their needs across. Whether you know, a lot of times that can be nonverbal communication as well. And so those are very general topics. So when people see these, you know, they think of autism, they try, they they typically think of the more extreme. And it's not something that you can see. So when you see that somebody, you can tell, okay, they don't, they're not speaking, you know, they're in the middle of a meltdown. Okay, they're autistic. They're probably autistic or something like that. You know, people might understand that, but at the same time, they're not going to realize that, look at Kim, you know, Kim Rhodes. She did, you know, she was a mom on Zach and, Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, right? She is autistic. But people don't think of someone being out in the world being, you know, a celebrity or an actor as someone being autistic because it's not something you can see. And when it comes down to the core of it and, you know, really communicating with people with autism, um, it really comes down to the individual and asking the individual what you can do to make communication better. Are there things that, you know, I should be aware of that might be a trigger for your sensory needs? Things like that, because it, it is a spectrum. It is, you know, such, there's such varying different needs that everyone has. And there's also a lot of comorbid disorders that go along commonly with autism that it makes it a big variable for each individual. So say, you know, you're fighting depression while being autistic. Well, that's going to affect how well you can handle the environment around you. Because if you're already depressed, you're dealing with these strong, sad emotions and things like that you know, you're not going to be able to really use the same skills or you can use the same skills, but they won't be the same value. So like, I know, okay, I can use my headphones, but if I'm depressed, I might not even think about stuff as I'm just trying to push the day where I'm not thinking to grab headphones to cover my ears or things like that, where these comorbid disorders really affect how we interact with the world around us because there are times where I can go into a store and be perfectly fine, no supports whatsoever. And then, you know, a week later I can do the exact same thing, but then struggle greatly to the point that I can't finish a shopping trip because that day I'm struggling with maybe my ADHD is flaring up a little bit more and I can't focus, or I'm noticing that, you know, it's colder in the store by 10 degrees or so, you know, little things like that, that change things so quickly for us. The big thing I would say is one thing you'll always notice is routines. We all, even if it's not a routine, like you might think of routine as, okay, they do these things at the exact times. Well, it might not always be that, but for like for me, it might not always, I'm, I'm late to everything. I am horrible about being late. <laughs> it drives my daughter crazy. And, but at the same time, there's things where I do that are routine. Like when I go into certain stores, I have a set pattern on how I go through the store so that I don't miss things. So I don't, you know, forget to grab certain things I need to grab while shopping. And I also just don't get overwhelmed because I'm sticking to that routine. And if for some reason I can't go that path, it throws me off greatly. And that's when you'll see my support needs going up. And the same can be said for, you know, anyone on the spectrum that, you know, it's, we all create these routines that work for us that we've learned. This is how we can kind of control the world directly around us. 
And when that's disrupted, that's when you see the symptoms more of autism. So what, what's the best way for people to find that information to get help if uh, themselves and or their children have autism? Like, what would you recommend that they look at? Yeah, so the biggest thing, you know, from an early stage, if you're looking at from, you know, young age, you know, like things I talk about with my son, you know, that regression or, you know, kind of lack of pointing at things or reaching for things, you know, not coming up with certain, you know, like two word sentences by like two years old, things like that. Clumsiness is very common for us, uh, having poor muscle tone. So like, you know, constantly tripping, getting bruises, stuff like that, kind of almost being socially and emotionally immature for their age based on their peers. And so those things are kind of common more. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things people a lot of times notice with their children. Uh, whereas adults, you know, it's kind of retroactively looking at stuff, looking at other people's diagnosis and realizing, oh, I kind of sound similar to that. Um, but when it comes to getting the support, the first thing, you know, if you have a child that you're concerned about, the first step is always your pediatrician. And they will be able to go through a lot of checklists with you to kind of evaluate and give you a referral. There are tons of autism centers throughout the you know, United States now that doctors can refer to that if they'll they specialize in. They're called developmental pediatrician. And so they are able to help diagnose. When it comes to adults with diagnosing autism, it's much different. There is a big lack of resources that even once you become diagnosed and getting those resources and supports, but it is still possible. You just have to be able to find a psychiatrist or a psychologist that has experience working with autistic adults who is willing to do an evaluation for autism. A lot of times, though, that resource is hard for adults to obtain due to lack of insurance or cost. And so a bigger thing that I can really definitely advocate for for adults is really connecting with the autistic community and connecting via, you know, TikTok or Twitter, whatever your social media preference is, and kind of interacting with other creators, autistic creators to kind of get an idea of what supports have helped them. Because, you know, for an adult, sometimes receiving an autism diagnosis is a great thing because then you know for sure this is what's going on. You can retroactively look back and kind of heal from some things as a child that you didn't understand. But for others, it might not give them any benefit at all. And the benefits for them would be more looking into what supports can help them in their individual, you know, situation. Well, very good. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your honesty and your openness and, and your insights. Thank you. Absolutely. I definitely appreciate you having me on here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.